Good evening, church. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. We began our study of Proverbs last week, and uh, Brian Lewis preached to us from the first seven verses. And verse 7 serves as a kind of topic verse for the rest of the book of Proverbs. And what it does for us is it holds out two different ways, the way of the wise and the way of the fool. It says the wise man is the one who fears the Lord. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And the fool is the one who despises instruction and teaching. And you might say that this passage before us, verses 8 through 19, are a kind of illustration of those two different ways. It's illustrated by two competing voices that we find in this passage. There are three different times in this passage where we find the words, my son. It's imagined as a father speaking to his son and imparting wisdom. And the competing voice is the enticement of sinners saying, come with us and, uh, and gain uh, financial well-being and more riches. So these two competing voices. I think one thing we should see about this passage is that it's gracious of God to not only instruct us in the positive way that we should go, but to also warn us against the pitfalls that we might uh, fall into and so not live the life that he has called us to. And so in view of that grace, let's go to God's word and humbly listen and be taught wisdom from his word. Before we do so, let me pray for us and ask for the Spirit's help. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would come and open the eyes of our hearts and give us understanding of your word. We, show, we ask that you would show us Jesus very clearly this evening and that you would help us to respond as we should. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Maybe the easiest or uh, most popular or well-known example of the principle taught in this text comes from the life of Bernie Madoff. You've probably heard his story. If you haven't, I could sum it up in saying that um, he made his living in the financial industry by massively over-promising and under-delivering. And in so doing, he stole billions of dollars from the many people who entrusted their money with him, and he gained all the benefit. They were suffering financially 
from his uh, machinations. And all the while, he was gaining more uh, houses and boats and expensive watches. In a little, uh, little publicized interview that he had with investigators after he was finally caught in 2008, he said, he told the investigators that he was actually somewhat glad that he had been caught. He said it was a nightmare to keep up the lie the whole time. He said he was always worried that the next knock at the door would signal that the jig was up, as he put it. He said, I wish they would have caught me eight or nine years earlier so I didn't have to live that experience every day. Now, whether or not you believe that he's telling the truth when he says that, his life illustrates a principle that we find in this text. And that is, when we seek personal gain at the expense of other people, it is the, fee- the thief rather than the victim who receives the most detriment. When we seek our own personal gain at the expense of other people, we end up taking away our own lives rather than theirs in the end. It's a hard thing for us to believe sometimes because we look at our world, we look at our city, and we can often believe that the wicked and the evil get away with things on a daily basis. And they seem to have it easier. They seem to gain life while those who are honest and follow the path of righteousness seem to suffer. And what we must remember when we read Proverbs is that we're not only, we're not reading mere teaching or ideas. We're seeing a person. We're seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul tells us is the wisdom of God. And what we'll see in this passage is that this principle that is taught is vindicated in the person of Jesus Christ, who himself became the innocent sufferer at the hands of the wicked and was the the perfect son who kept and heeded his father's teaching and obeyed his father's teaching and avoided the way of the wicked. And so if we want to be wise like Jesus, I think the primary thing that this text teaches us to do is to delight in the law of the Lord. I use that language very intentionally because of the parallels we see in this passage in Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter one, where we say the blessed man is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked as verse 15 says of our passage, but in converse, he delights in the law of the Lord. I'm going to show you just a few ways from this text that we can very practically delight in the law of the Lord and so avoid the temptation of sinners and the wicked and fall into those pitfall, pitfalls that the Lord Jesus warns us against here. The first is by hearing and teaching God's word. You see that in the very first word of the passage, hear my son. Now, this might not cause our ears to perk up as much as it would have for the original readers, but that word here in Hebrew is Shema. And you've likely heard of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so this hearing is more than a mere being in the sound of one's voice. It's an internalizing into one's heart, making it a part of who you are, and then applying it comprehensively to your life. That's the hearing that we are 
instructed towards here. And so I think the question that we might first ask ourselves in order to delight in the law of the Lord is what is the primary voice that you are listening into in your life? What voice are you giving the most weight in your life? It's an important question for us because probably more than ever before, we are just absolutely inundated with options for who we can listen to. It seems like there is as many podcasts as there are people these days. There's all types of podcasts, different YouTube channels, social media, different influencers trying to gain our attention and, and build a platform for themselves, TV, books, blogs, all types of voices constantly screaming at us to try to gain our attention. And so how do we, how do we choose which one to listen to? And I know that this is probably a particular struggle or challenge for you, those of you who are in middle school and in high school, because you're at a point in your lives where you are starting to gain a little bit more independence and a little bit more of an identity for yourselves. And you've had the teaching of your parents growing up, and that's a voice. And then you have the voice of your friends, and you're on social media, and you're hearing different voices speaking to you there. And so you wonder, who, who am I to listen to? Who am I to give primary weight to when I'm listening to people? I want to give us one question that we might ask ourselves when we're trying to discern who to give the primary voice to. And it's this, who is most personally invested in your life? Who is the person who, is most pers- who knows you the best, who has invested their time, their energy, their resources in you? Probably that is the person who you should give the most weight to when you are deciding who you will hear. Or to put it another way, if they've changed your diapers, it's probably a good idea to listen to them, whether at home or in the church nursery. Who are the people who are most personally invested in you? I don't think it's any mistake that the author imagines himself as a father and a mother to a child the people that are most invested in a person's life. Now, maybe you haven't grown up in a home where your parents have taught you God's word or how to walk with the Lord, or or maybe now your your parents are all interested in teaching you God's word. The good news about the church is that when we become members of the church, we're part of a covenant family. And so you look around this room and you're surrounded by mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters you can listen to and be taught. Give those people the primary voice in your life. Hear those people. Put ourselves before the word of the God, the word of God on a regular basis. And so be taught by that voice over and above all the others. This also has implications for those of us who teach. And that's more than just the pastors and the elders and Sunday school teachers, because if you're a part of this church, When you are in fellowship with each other, we're all teaching each other either by opening up God's word or just by our lives examples. So we all have some instruction to teach. And this this teaching has two primary parts, as the proverb shows us. Two words are given here. One is instruction. and, And the meaning of that is warning against pitfalls. In other words, don't do this. Don't go in that way. And the other one is teaching. This would be positive direction. This is the way that you should go to live the life God has made you for. 
So instruction and teaching. And we'll get to instruction in the next point, but let's uh, look more closely at this teaching. I want to I want to encourage us as teachers among each other to to press in to think long and hard about how we might teach each other by giving a better yes, as some people have called it. Notice with me the logic of this passage where he says, Hear my, your father's instruction, forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. In other words, sometimes as Christians, we can be known more for what we are against than what we are for. And we ought to think uh, very intentionally about how we can teach the positive vision of life that God gives us in his word in a way that is so attractive to each other that anything else is almost reflexively wrong. I just want to give you one example here. I, I told you that uh, that word Shema would have uh, transported the listeners back to the book of Deuteronomy. And since this is dealing with, uh, you know, possessions and, and money and wealth, let's think about a couple of positive instructions from the book of Deuteronomy that these listeners would have had on their minds. One was the idea of the Sabbath, right? And, and very... Uh, very shortly, the, the idea there is that we have seven days of provision for six days of work. God provides more than we actually work for. Another one would be uh, the Sabbath year. So every seven years, if someone owed you a debt, you were to release them of a portion or all of that debt. And so it was a way to show compassion, compassion and generosity to the covenant community of God. And we see those things picked up in the New Testament where it, we, we read in, in Paul's letter that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. That, that generosity, self-giving to us. And then we read the promise later on that if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. So it's this beautiful vision of life in relationship with each other and relationship with our possessions that is characterized by generosity. God gives you more than you work for, and so therefore you can give others more than they have worked for from you. You can release them from all that they owe you. What would it look like for us as a covenant community at Second Prez to rather than competing with one another and trying to keep up with one another in terms of what we we possess and, and the vacations that we do and all of these different things in relation to our possession and our resources to instead live a life of such contentment, such joy and such generosity towards each other that anything else from the next generation of our church and our peers looks reflexively wrong. To show a better yes so that when the enticement of sinners comes to gain easy money and possessions, we are able to say no because we have this positive vision of wisdom that God has given us. What would it look like? That's the, that's the logic used in Deuteronomy. Here, keep the commands that I'm giving you so that it may go well with you and with your children. That it may go well with you. So first, we, we hear those voices who are most personally invested in our lives, and then we teach one another in the body of Christ as brothers and sisters 
and sons and daughters and fathers and mothers. Having given the positive direction here in this first part of the passage, the father then turns to the realities of life. It's one of the things I love about Proverbs is that it doesn't deal in the ideal, but it deals in the real. It says, these are the realities you will face, and here's the wisdom to face it well, to live well in the face of it. The first is to avoid the enticement of sinners. So you say, they say, come with us. We'll gain easy money. We'll all share one purse together. And the command is simple. Do not consent. Now, I think if Satan wanted us to read this passage a certain way, he would want us to read these words and we would say, well, I don't murder people and steal their possessions and I don't join other people in it. Okay, check, move on to the next passage. But it's the heart of wisdom that moves from these surface level metaphors down to the heart behind the commands that we find here. And so we need to apply this comprehensively to our lives in order to truly delight in the law of the Lord. Let's think of some examples. Some obvious ones might be human trafficking or predatory payday lending, ways that people prey on innocent people for their own personal gain. Another might be instructive for employers or landlords who might keep their employees in poor working conditions and poor wages because they know they're desperate for a job or keep them in poor living conditions because they know they're desperate for affordable housing. It's a way to prey on innocent people for one's personal gain. You see these words, we will swallow them whole. It's this idea of degrading a person so much that their only value in life is so that I might gain some satisfaction out of it. And so anytime one consumes pornography, even if you don't pay for it, you are degrading an image bearer of God and you're contributing to a billion dollar industry that degrades image bearers of God. You're lying in wait for blood. Anytime we gossip or slander or put down another person to make ourselves look better by comparison or to maybe bond with other people that we'd like to be friends with and create this us versus them dynamic. We are putting down other people for personal gain. The list could go on and on and on. Um, One author sums it up like this. He says, there are many legal, polite, arguable, even religious ways of saying, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Ultimately, in sum, what is condemned in this passage is any thought, speech, or action that seeks personal gain at the expense of others. Any thought, speech, or action that seeks personal gain at the expense of others. Now, even as I say that, even as I, as we, as a covenant community, humble ourselves and seek to apply this passage comprehensively to our lives, I realize that we can't read the words of this passage in Memphis without going deeper than a metaphor or even hyperbole. Because these realities let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. These aren't metaphors or hyperbole in our life. These are real things that are happening in our city 
to us and to people that we love and care for. Those places that used to feel familiar are now tainted. Those places that used to feel safe and secure are now fraught with fear. We're fearful. We're also angry. When will we see some change, some justice? We might read this proverb and say, I can't believe that because it seems like the the evil get away with it every day in the city in which I live. I want you to see two things from this passage that I pray the Spirit will use to give you hope and peace this week. First thing I want you to see, I told you wisdom is a person in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see a Savior who sees you, who knows, and who understands. Think with me in your imagination back to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was the night before he was to go to the cross, and he's praying with his disciples. This was a place that they often went for respite from ministry to pray and to fellowship. It was a familiar place that felt safe and secure. And so when Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he knew he would find them there. And it's there that he invades and brings this, this company of soldiers to ambush and arrest Jesus. Jesus knows what it is to have the safe and the familiar invaded and for it to no longer feel safe. Jesus is the perfect son who hears and heeds his father's instruction, but rather than receiving a graceful garland for his head, he received the crown of thorns. Rather than a pendant for his neck, the blood that ran down his head was his necklace. They cast lots for his clothes. They jeered at him, they mocked him, and they killed him. Jesus knows what it is to be taken advantage of, to have innocent blood shed for the gain of another. And so, brothers and sisters, when you leave the grocery store and you enter the the parking lot and you're unsure, Jesus sees you. He knows. He understands. He's with you there. When you leave the church at night and you are filled with fear when you go into the parking lot, Jesus sees, he knows he's with you there. When you drop your children off at church and at school and you say a quick prayer for their safety, Jesus sees, he knows, and he's with you there. He's with you in in every category of your suffering because he experienced it too. Jesus is with you there. The second thing comes in the final point of our passage this evening, which shows us that the final way to delight in the law of the Lord is by steadfastly obeying God's word and waiting for Jesus to put all things right. It's gracious of God to show us the end here, isn't it, in this final portion of the passage? Because we can become so short-sighted that we go for the immediate gratification rather than obeying and waiting for what Jesus says is right. And so he shows us the end. He says, unjust gain, in the end, takes away the lives of its possessors. And he's not only given us the principle here, he's shown us little glimpses of it throughout Scripture. 
You think of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, who's carried away into exile. And he's given a, a high place where if he just were to forsake his mother and father's teaching, he could live a very comfortable and safe life. But instead, he steadfastly obeys the Lord. And it's in that obedience that he finds himself at odds with the high officials. And they come up with this plot to, to take his life, to throw him to the lions. But what happens? God closes the mouths of the lions. He delivers Daniel. He exposes the plot of the high officials to the king. And then we read that the high officials didn't reach the floor of the lion's den before they were destroyed. It's this poetic justice that we read about in scripture all the time. Think of Esther. She was in the king's palace. She could have lived a comfortable life. She could have let the Jews perish. But then she says, "If, if I perish, I perish. And she goes before the king. She puts her life at stake. And what happens? The Jews are delivered. And Haman, who had plotted to kill Mordecai, meets the same fate that he had planned for Mordecai. And of course, Daniel and Esther are only a foreshadow of Jesus. One author says that though Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, by Sunday morning, it was Judas who was in the grave and Jesus was walking out of his. Brothers and sisters, as we hold on, as we strive to obey, even when it looks foolish to the rest of the world, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our vindication. That even if we are killed and innocent blood is shed as Jesus was, he will rise again. And even if we die, we're not ever finally dead because he will come back one day to raise us with him. And that will be our vindication that we go to be with Jesus in a new city that is impenetrably safe and secure and where justice and mercy reign. The cross is the ultimate picture of God's mercy towards sinner, yes, and it's also the ultimate picture of God's justice. God will punish sin and evil. And we won't see it perfectly in this life for as long as we live, but he's given us the resurrection, that reality that is broken into ours to prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day we will be raised to a place where justice and mercy are perfected. That's the reality we hold on to as we seek to delight in the law of the Lord and obey steadfastly, waiting for that final day of vindication. So, friends, as you come to the table tonight, I want you to prepare and come expectantly to meet a Savior who shed his innocent blood so that he might save you and give you comfort that he's there with you in your fear. I want you to come expectantly to meet a Savior who promises to spiritually nourish you through this meal so that you might avoid temptation and steadfastly obey as you wait for final vindication. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us that you show us both this beautiful vision of how to live this wise life demonstrated in the life of Jesus and written down for us here in Proverbs. And you also warn us against the pitfalls that might take life away from us. We ask that you would give us wisdom on how to apply this to our own lives.
and that you'd give us perseverance to do so with steadfastness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.